Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to Psalm 40. If you don't have a Bible, we always encourage you to uh, use a blue pew Bible in front of you. We'd love you to have it open and follow along with us there. And you can find Psalm 40 on page 468. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe enjoyed some time off over the weekend. I know we have a lot of families that are out, out of town traveling. I know we have other families that are in town visiting and uh, students home from college. And so it's good to see everyone and to worship with you this morning. And as we now jump rather quickly from Thanksgiving into our Advent season, as you can see, uh, the uh, beautiful decorations here. And so a very special shout out and thank you to Melissa Graves and the large team that was here yesterday afternoon uh, decorating this space. Um, I've already had several people come up to me and just tell me how great everything looks up here. And I'm very quick to respond in saying that uh, one of the reasons why it looks so good up here is because I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I had zero decision-making power here. Uh, everything was out of my hands, and that is a good thing uh, for our church. And uh, just thank you to all those who served and used your giftings uh, in this way. Yeah, amen. And as we begin Advent season, um, I recognize that maybe there are uh, many here who are unfamiliar with the word Advent, um, or perhaps you might loosely recognize that that word is often associated with Christmas in the church, but might not uh, be sure as to why. Um, the, the word Advent literally means arrival um, or the coming. And so a season of Advent in the church is a season of anticipation of Christ's arrival. And over the course of church history, Advent has always had a twin focus to it. Um, first being a reflection on the first coming of Jesus in the flesh as a baby. Um, the long-awaited Savior that shone a light into the darkness. Uh, but what often maybe doesn't get as focused on as much in Advent is the second focus. And that is on the season of anticipation of his second coming. And so in many ways, we stand in a long line of 2,000 years of church history that is in this time of Advent still, uh, awaiting and anticipating the return of Christ, who this time will not come as a baby, uh, but will come as king uh, to reign in glory on earth as it is in heaven. And so Advent, uh, this time of year, is one of the oldest traditions within the church liturgy and in the church practices. Um, it was within a few centuries of Jesus being born, um, living, dying on the cross, and being raised again that the church commemorated his dearth, fixing the date December 25th. And there are various thoughts as to why uh, that date was fixed, uh, but one of them is because uh, th that his arrival and his birth was traditionally uh, thought to have happened during the December solstice in the northern hemisphere. The December solstice being one of the darkest days of the year. And so even the symbolism of the light shining into the darkness at the peak of darkness in the northern hemisphere. And that being one of the reasons or theories as to why December 25th was fixed. Um, but then you get to the 300s. Okay, so not 1300s. Further back, the like 300s um, is the first written evidence of an annual Advent tradition in local churches. And it was happening in uh, what is now modern-day Spain. Uh, it's not that that's when it started, but that's the first written evidence we have that there was a tradition that was ongoing annually uh, about Advent. Uh, fast forward to the 500s, and the firm dating of Advent happened where it was the four Sundays before Christmas Day, what we know now and still celebrate as the season of Advent. 
four Sundays preceding Christmas Day, and it is a time of preparation for the church, uh, the significance of Jesus' birth and, and what it came to be, um, and then, again, to kind of celebrate and resonate with the fact that we are still in a season of Advent. And in those 500s, there's evidence of the churches doing a sermon series that was related in those four weeks to Advent. Um, and so uh, it is this annual rhythm that we here at Grace in 2022 still enjoy, uh, that we lean into, um, and yet we don't just do it for the sake of tradition and because we like it. Um, we know that we're in a culture now that very much has a Christmas culture and Christmas uh, and things that are associated with that in our culture, some of which you like, probably others of which you can't stand. Um, you know, you've been drinking out of red cups at Starbucks for a few weeks now. Uh, you know, you go into any retail store, you start singing the songs and hearing the songs. Uh, you hear People starting to talk about letters to Santa and writing letters to Santa. Uh, some of you are bothered by the fact that I just said Santa in church. All right, that like so. There's all these traditions that uh, we like some and we don't like others, but very much marks our culture. And so it is a time for us to be reminded that as Christians, um, this time of year is not primarily marked by the Christmas season in the culture, however much or little you enjoy that, but it is more deeply marked by Advent season in the church. And that there's a joy to it, but also a certain weight to it, an expectancy that we have as the people of God. And so um, our hope over the next month is that in the midst of our Advent services and the various events and gatherings that will be taking place across all the ministries um, in the next few weeks, that God would use it to stir your affections afresh for him. Uh, some of you, you know that you need to have your affections reawakened for Christ, for whatever reason that that has dimmed over time, uh, and that um, our hope is that this Advent, God would use this season to reawaken some things in you that maybe have not been there for a while. Um, and so on that note, just to, while we stand here at the first day of Advent, kind of looking out into the future, a quick word on our services over Christmas weekend. Uh, some of you know that Christmas Eve is on a Saturday this year. And so on Saturday, December 24th, we will have our uh, candlelight services at 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. that day. Um, there will be child care through preschool. And so if you're in town uh, for Christmas Eve, we'd love to have you as one, at one of those services. Uh, but if you do the math, if Christmas Eve is on a Saturday, uh, Christmas Day this year is on a Sunday. And one thing that we have talked about, especially this fall, it's kind of casting our, our vision looking into the distant future, is that one of the things that marks this church is that on Sundays we gather. Because it is the Lord's Day. And so Christmas Day this year, we will be gathering on Christmas Day, but we'll be doing one gathering on Sunday morning, December 25th. It'll be at 11 a.m., um, and at that service, there will be no child care, nor nursery or kids' worship. But when I say that, don't think, don't bring children to that service. Uh, we actually are really much looking forward to the opportunity to meet all together uh, for that gathering. It'll be about a 50 to 60-minute service. Uh, it'll be different from the service the night before. It's going to be kind of an unplugged, just congregational singing of Christmas hymns. It's going to be various people reading through the scripture narrative. And then, as we do each Lord's Day, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, because on Sundays we gather and we take the Lord's Supper. And it will have, I think, special significance doing that together on Christmas Day. So that will be Christmas morning. Uh, and if you keep doing the math, that means if Christmas Day is on a Sunday, New Year's Day is on a Sunday. All right? So we're going to meet at 5 a.m. on New Year's Day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and just see who shows up. No, but we will do one service. But in the Lord's mercy, we'll make it the 11 a.m. service. All right? Not the 9 a.m. service. But we'll have one gathering. That will be uh, a full service with uh, nursery 
And uh, we, again, will have the opportunity to start the new year gathering together and um, enjoying uh, what the Lord has planned for us. And then the following week, January 8th, we'll be back to our normal schedule with the new sermon series, um, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. But now we begin our Advent sermon series. And it's a series we're calling Waiting Well. A big part of Advent and anticipating an arrival is a season of waiting. So what does it look like to wait well? And we're going to start um, in the Old Testament this week before jumping to the New Testament next week. And a big theme throughout the New Testament is waiting. That the people of Israel were marked by people who were always and seemed to be always waiting. And so there's a whole litany of passages we could choose from the Old Testament that has this theme of waiting. But we're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning. And we're going to jump right in starting with verses 1 through 5. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So I'll admit something that is probably not too surprising or controversial. Um, I generally don't love to wait. Not a big fan of waiting. Because I often find that waiting time is wasted time. At least that's how I often approach it. That waiting time is wasted time. And uh, as you might imagine, this is a problem for me. You know why? Because we spend a lot of our lives waiting. Every single day. It's something that all people can resonate with. No matter your season of life, your demographic, uh, anything that describes you, what we all have in common is that we wait, and we are a waiting people every day. And most times, I'd say, waiting is merely an inconvenience for us. Um, Perhaps you wait on your commute to work or to school in various capacities, sitting in traffic or waiting on a platform for a train to arrive or on a line for a bus to come. Uh, I remember the five years I spent working in finance out of college, uh, commuting into Midtown from Hawthorne. Um, and, and always took the train. And I, I, often at the end of the day coming home, it was worse than waiting to you know, go to work in the morning. But I would, I would find myself just like staring at the tracks in the distance, just going like, come on, come on, come on, come on. Like as if that would do anything to keep the train come forward. But like I'm just muttering under my breath, like, come on, come on. And if you've taken a train into the city or if you commute, you know that the first indicator as you look out into the distance is you see a little light. You just see the little flicker of light, and you know that's the headlight of the train, and you're all pumped that, like, finally it has come, as long as you're not devastated by the fact that it was actually for a different track uh, when, you, when you got, like, at Secaucus, and like, okay, no, that was track one, I'm on track two. But perhaps you can uh, commiserate with the idea or resonate with commuting. Um, but all of us, no matter what, you're waiting at doctor's offices or you're waiting on customer service calls or for the internet to connect or for your kids to put their shoes on after the fourth time you've asked them and you're like, it literally defies science how long you're taking to do this right now. Like, it just cannot be that slow that you might think, along with me, waiting time is wasted time. And within the daily and weekly rhythms of our lives, it's usually inconvenient. 
Um, but I will say there are times when waiting is actually something that can be enjoyed, uh, where you almost anticipate something great. You often um, see this in children waiting for Christmas, or maybe not even children, maybe as an adult. You just get starting today, like today's the start of the countdown, and you just love the countdown to Christmas. And the reason why you can't anticipate it is because there's a definite ending to the waiting, and you know when it will be. And you can check the days off. And so you don't dread it. You actually anticipate it and even enjoy it. But then there's a waiting in life where it could be excruciatingly painful. And this is one that we'll talk about this morning and one you see throughout Scripture. And the reason why it's so painful is because this is the kind of waiting that has no timeline with it. Um, You don't know how long it will last for the waiting to stop. Or if what you're actually waiting for will ever come at all. Those who are waiting for uh, some kind of love in their life, perhaps love from their parents that they've always yearned for but never feel like they could obtain. Um, love for or from your children. Uh, somebody who's single and is yearning for love of a future spouse. Um, perhaps a rekindled love with a current spouse, waiting for reconciliation waiting for resolution of something in your life, waiting for justice, uh, for freedom. Uh, Perhaps you're waiting for healing or for a job or for the ability to start a family, Um, the kind of waiting that it is excruciatingly painful. So as we begin now to unpack Psalm 40, I wonder if you would even take a moment in your own mind to, to consider and acknowledge what are you waiting for? right now. As we begin a new Advent season, what are you waiting for? Because while, like I said, waiting is something that all people can resonate with, there is a layer of waiting that is unique to the Christian. In that all waiting, whether the ones you anticipate or the ones that are merely inconvenient or the waiting that's excruciatingly painful, is waiting in a sense for the Lord. It's a layer in the waiting a Christian has that others don't, waiting on the Lord. And so this Advent season where we want to think about and consider what it means to wait well. And we focus on this season of waiting. And so we get to now to Psalm 40, and he begins in the first five verses with this proclamation, I waited patiently for the Lord. It's how he begins. I waited patiently. He didn't just say, I waited for the Lord. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. So here's our question for us this morning. Do you need help in knowing how to wait patiently? We're all going to be forced to wait. But do you know how to wait patiently? Can you say that you know what it means and what it looks like to wait patiently? If not, would you like to know how? That's where Psalm 40 enters, and King Davis shows us three ways to wait patiently on the Lord. Starting with number one, gratitude for past deliverance. Here's where he goes in the first five verses. The key to waiting patiently begins with gratitude for past deliverance. 
Again, David recounts a period in his life in the past where he felt trapped and was unable to set himself free. And his time of waiting, we see right off the bat, was not idle. If your Bible's still open, look at the back half of verse 1. He inclined his ear to me and heard my cry. David was crying out to the Lord. So waiting patiently, if there's one thing you learn today, just remember this. Waiting patiently does not mean waiting quietly. To wait patiently does not necessarily mean to wait quietly. That there is a sense in where there can be a crying out to God for deliverance. That is very much in alignment with patience. And so he reflects upon a time in the past when God proved faithful to him. And we don't get any real specific details of what his, quote, pit of destruction was that he was talking about. All we know at this point that he was in a painful place, an unstable place, and then God delivered him. And, and, and the language that he uses in this fashion to kind of just put some word pictures in your mind of him saying, he set my feet upon a rock. He put a new song in my mouth, a, a song of praise. And not only did it spark gratitude in him, but it actually sparked uh, hope beyond himself. Did you notice that? Where he says, uh, God worked in me. He delivered me. But now God will work through my story so that other people will trust in you. He says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord based upon what the Lord has done in my life. And, and so he, he, here's the thing for us. Um, I think the nonspecific nature of David's pit actually makes it easier to apply to our lives. Because we will all find ourselves in moments and seasons of our life where we are stuck. And you would say you feel trapped in what he calls a pit of destruction. And so as he's reflecting on his deliverance from that, we can now do the same. What is a pit that you have been delivered from? And I realize that maybe many of you would say that it's not just in the past that you right now are currently in one of those pits. And so what is a pit? Um, let, let me offer maybe a few options as to what a, a pit of destruction can look like in our life. This is not an exhaustive list, but just to get our minds going. Um, starting with number one, the, the, the pit of defeat. What I mean by this is that you feel discouraged that your inability to succeed in life based upon how you define success. Uh, perhaps it's relationally, that you have found it hard to make friends. Um, in school as a student or in adulthood, that just making friends is hard, friendship is hard. And then not only that, but keeping friends even feels harder. And there's a sense of discouragement. Like, I just don't think I have any real friends, or I feel like I can't maintain these friendships. Why am I struggling so much at this? Perhaps it's the struggle to have and cultivate a healthy marriage. Uh, perhaps you're a manager at work. And if you're honest, you know the people at work, they can't stand you. And you've taken the classes, and you've, you've read the books, and you've done the training on how to be a good manager, but the people that are serving under you can't stand you. And you just feel like a failure. And you're hard on yourself, and you can realize the confidence you have is just lowering. Everyone else seems to be doing just fine, thriving even. Why not me? Why am I losing? The pit of defeat. Uh, next, it could be the pit of sin, where you feel pinned down by a specific sin. 
and you're stuck in this shame cycle that it often brings about, that you don't like it, you don't like doing it or thinking it, but then it comes and you feel overcome by it, then you feel dirty that you feel overcome by it, and I'm supposed to be a Christian and I'm still struggling with this, and then that leads you further down into the pit and you just feel stuck and you feel trapped and you're wondering, will I ever be free from fill in the blank? Will I ever be free from my own laziness? Will I ever be free from materialism and always trying to find happiness in the next thing I buy? Will I ever be free from my addiction to pornography that no one else knows about, but I just can't get out from under it? Will I ever be free from the dependency I have on certain things or certain people to keep me going day to day? Will I ever be free from my own uh, prone nature to be dishonest? I'm, I'm just really good at lying, and I find it very easy to lie. And I, I can't stand it, but I'm, I, I just can't get out from it. It's just too available. It's too easy. It's the pit of sin. Uh, next, perhaps, it's the, what I'm just calling the pit of circumstance. And maybe this is the largest category in terms of things that could be put into that. But, but what I mean by this is that there, there are tri- trials that you are facing that are kind of outside of your control. Things are happening in your company. Uh, things are happening in your family. And there's not necessarily someone to blame. Uh, you're not yourself to blame, but you're in the midst of a struggle. Perhaps it's a season of grief over loss, especially heading into the holidays and, and how hard this season has become ever since you lost someone close to you. It, it could even be uh, the, the stress of success. And, and you just can't keep up with your own success. It's actually just made you more stressful and more miserable. And you're in the circumstance where you feel like, I'm, I'm just in the pit and I'm stuck, but it's because things are going so well and this is confusing to me. Um, I think this is especially one that's not just individual, but it could be communal. Uh, a family, a church family, uh, a country, a people group who feel the oppression of a circumstance. That is what Israel was under before the time of Christ. They, weren't, they didn't have autonomy. They were under the oppressive rule of the Romans. And, and there was not one person to blame, but they just collectively were stuck. And, and then lastly for now, again, not an exhaustive list, but maybe just some things to think about, is, is the pit of hopelessness. Uh, hopelessness. Where you feel like there's just kind of a gray cloud over everything. And you don't have hope for the future. Uh, you, you maybe don't have hope that things will ever turn. And you, and you know it. it. It's possible, quote unquote, and other people have experienced it. But you don't feel like that could actually happen in your life. To the point where you actually don't even struggle anymore. You actually just feel numb to everything. Uh, even maybe now you're listening to it, you're just kind of numb to it all. It's just kind of bouncing right off of you. And, and maybe you're even scared of the fact that I don't even feel anymore. I'm just numb to it. It's the pit of hopelessness. It's hard to be patient when you're in the pit. And so David's model is so powerful here, and he models the power of gratitude for past deliverance, especially for the people of God. He's saying that gratitude is something you are empowered to have. Did you know that? It's not just something you're commanded to have. You are empowered to be grateful. To reflect on his goodness. 
that he's gotten you to this point, that no matter how bad things are or how tough things are, that there's always something in your life, uh, present and past, and someone, particularly God himself, to be grateful for. Because here's the key. Gratitude is chosen before it is felt. In your life, gratitude is chosen before it is felt. I think this is obviously fitting for us coming off Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I, I feel like I came across a bunch of different studies or links to, um, to studies that are out there of the benefit of gratitude. And, and not necessarily Christian studies, right, put out by secular organizations, kind of showing how, how uh, gratitude really impacts the brain and impacts your physical health and your emotional health, that the, the benefit of gratitude. And, and in some ways, the world's catching up to what the Bible has been saying all along. That gratitude has benefits that go far beyond just your feeling in the moment, but for your emotional, physical, spiritual health. And so as we think about being believers, like what an advantage you have if you're walking with Christ. Like what an advantage you have, that you have the Spirit of God in you to empower you to be grateful for every good thing. That you don't just have to be grateful for the universe. You, if you see an awesome view and you're out in a landscape, you don't just have to be grateful to nature. You, you don't have to just have to be grateful for other people in your life. That you can roll that up and you can keep rolling that up. You can be grateful to the author of it all in everything. And so as we think about gratitude as a way to um, help us to wait patiently, it's not just to use it as an emergency break, like things are going really bad, I'm struggling with impatience, okay, I've got to be grateful. But rather to begin now, when you're not in a season of waiting, of how to build in rhythms of gratitude into your life. And those rhythms can find itself in many ways. Um, here's one that's common that many of you do, maybe many of you grew up doing. How about praying before a meal? And maybe if you've been in a home where that's always been done, it's almost a little bit like a ritual to you and like it kind of bothers you or bothers the kids when they're so hungry. Like, nope, we got to pray. Okay, let's pray. But isn't praying before a meal a reminder to be grateful for everything we have, including this meal? That every gift, good gift comes from above? And that for every area of life that that. We're not just grateful for the tangible things, but ultimately we roll that up to be grateful for the cross. Parents, if you're praying before the meal or teaching your kids to pray for the meal, have them say thank you, but ensure that they say thank you for the cross. Roll that gratitude up. Because I've said this before, but when gratitude leaves the room, greed walks in. When gratitude walks out the door of your life, greed always enters in. And now we start thinking we always need more. And I just need more of what I already have to be grateful. And I'm never patient, let alone never content. And so for a tangible application for this week, if you are in a season of waiting, perhaps the most radical thing you can do at the end of a painful day is to pause before eating and thank God for who he is, for what he has done, and how he has brought you to this point. Maybe that is the strongest, most empowering part of your day, is praying before the next meal. Gratitude for past deliverance is the first vital secret ingredient to waiting patiently. All right, let's keep going. Back to Psalm 40. We're going to now read verses 6 through 10. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. 
I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Okay, number two, second aspect from Psalm 40 that will help us wait patiently is a resolve for present obedience. We start with gratitude for past deliverance. Now number two, a resolve for present obedience. Uh, Those verses 6 through 10 Um, They they can seem a little difficult to untangle as to what David is talking about there. We don't have the time to kind of break it down um, line by line. But overall, they actually speak to a common and biblical principle that is seen throughout the scripture. And the principle is this, obedience over sacrifice. That's what those verses are talking about. Obedience to God over sacrifice for God. Okay, well, what does that mean? Um, This passage it seems, is being drawn out by David from something that he knows was spoken by Samuel. So, a little bit of the context. Samuel was a prophet raised up by God to, in part, choose the king of Israel that God wanted. And that man was David. The problem was there was a current king that God did not want on the throne that was currently ruling over Israel, and his name was Saul. So, First Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel confronts King Saul for something he did uh, to basically keep more for himself and justified it that, you know what, the Lord would want me to have the best uh, because I'm king and the Lord wants what's best for me. And so he kept more for himself after he won a battle um, and the Lord had very clear instructions as to what he's due with the goods of the uh, people that he has conquered. And so he gave some to God, but he kept the best for himself and said the Lord would want me to have the best. And Samuel calls him out on it. And says, what are you doing? You're disobeying God. And Saul is very quick to be defensive, as we often are when we're called out for our sin. He says, no, 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 no. I I followed the Lord's instructions. I did what sacrifices needed to be done. Check the tape, Samuel. And Samuel says this in verse 22. He'll be on the screen. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, here it is, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the proper relationship between God and man is not accomplished and seen through outward ceremonial actions or outward sacrifices, but rather an inward surrendered heart. Let me say that again. Throughout the whole Bible, the proper relationship between God and man is not based upon outward actions that look like outward sacrifice, but it's a reflection of the inward nature and surrendering of our hearts. Where because we know him by faith and and we recognize that we are known by him, by his grace, we can say by the power of the Spirit in us what David said in verse 8. Again, if your Bible's open, look at verse 8. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. A growing delight, we talk about this all the time at Grace. A growing delight in the Lord leads to greater obedience to the Lord. When your affections are stirred for him 
And, and, and you can say in your heart, I just delight in the Lord. That is what spurs on greater obedience to the Lord. And so waiting patiently is not complacency, right? We, we can fall into that drift of like, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to wait on you. You just do whatever you have to do and tell me when you've kind of cleaned it up. And, and I'll, I'll just sit here until it's done. But rather, you see throughout the scripture this living in the midst of waiting that has a confidence and a hope to it that delights in obedience, that sees God's word and says, I delight in your law. And I'm not obeying you in order like to cut a deal. Like if I obey you for this amount of time, you'll give me what I'm waiting for. We often drift into that mindset too. But it's no, in the midst of this waiting, I'm going to trust it to you. And I'm going to go on in obedience in the present to do your will. That this is not just outward sacrifice to just get it done like Saul did. I did it. Check the tape. I did what needed to get done. I went to church when I was needed to do. I gave what money I was supposed to give. I, I did the serving projects that were put before me. I did it. And it's all window dressing. It's all outward. And it's sacrifice for God. Meanwhile, our hearts are far from him. This is obedience from a delight in the Lord is greater than these outward sacrifices for God. Those things are not bad. They are good, but they're only good in so much they have the motivation from the delight and the love for God and not to just put God in your debt to give you what you're waiting for. Obedience towards God, it's always our calling, but it's especially needed when we're waiting on the Lord. And then last point here before we go to number three is that if you see verses 9 through 10, he says, this is not just a benefit for you, that when you obey the Lord, other people benefit as well. Have you ever thought about the missional aspect of obedience? The, the missional aspect of your obedience. When David says, I've not hidden your deliverance in my heart, I've spoken of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. That, that your obedience in the midst of waiting, it benefits others. Other believers are encouraged at the way you're living in the midst of painful waiting. And non-believers are awakened and alerted to the fact that there's something in this person, a resolve to be dedicated to do the will of God in the midst of painful waiting that will, God will use to awaken them. It encourages believers. It evangelizes non-believers. It is the missional aspect of your obedience. And so waiting patiently is grounded in past gratitude. And waiting patiently is spurred on in choosing obedience in the present. And now we got one more. One more key piece to learning how to wait patiently. And so we're going to finish Psalm 40 with verses 11 through 17. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, that, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God.
last aspect of help of learning how to wait patiently is number three, prayer for future hope. Prayer for future hope. As you look at Psalm 40, it would seemingly would have made sense for it to end after verse 10. Like finishing on a high note. Like David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Look, God delivered me. And now I recount his goodness to everyone I come across. I dedicate my whole self to him. That would be a great ending to Psalm 40. But it's not the end. We find out in verse 11 and after why David is writing this in the first place. And the reason is because he's back in the pit. He's back in his pit of destruction. He's back in a time of waiting. And this time, some specifics are given. Verse 12, evils have encompassed me. My iniquities, meaning my sin, has overtaken me. David is consumed by his own sinful desires that he'd feel like he doesn't have victory over, some of which we know by reading the rest of the Bible. We know how that played out for David. We know the sins he struggled against. We know the damage it did to him and to others, and it was pretty serious, more serious than you could probably imagine if you aren't aware. So here's a man chosen by God to be king, a prolific leader over the people of God, over all of Israel, and yet in Psalm 40, he's saying, I am stuck in my own sin, and I feel trapped by it. I think first that should humble all of us. And remind us that no one is above falling into sin. A sin that can do real damage and destruction. No one is above it. No matter where you are in your walk with life, no matter what status you have, we are all way closer than we think to being consumed by our own fleshly desires and giving in to them. That does real damage, not only to our own souls, but to others. So it should humble us. And yet, in maybe a strange way, it should comfort us that even David struggled with sin. And so if you feel like you're in a fierce battle with sin right now, like you would say, right now, pastor, I'm battling the flesh. And maybe other people know about it. Most likely, others don't know the extent of it, of how much you're at war with your own flesh and how much you feel like you're just pinned down by it. I can't overcome it. Know that you're not alone. And there is reason for hope, real hope, which as we saw in the video is, is, is traditionally the first Sunday attached to Advent, you know, hope, joy, love, and peace. It starts with hope. One candle on the wreath lit as we head into the Advent season is the candle of hope. And all that's plaguing him, whether it's his own sin or he also talks about the oppression of enemies. And we also know David had his fair share of enemies who were out to kill him. So he's in the pit of defeat, he's in the pit of sin, he's in the pit of circumstance, he's got, he's got all the pits. And yet, as we saw in verse 1, waiting patiently does not mean waiting quietly. David is crying out to God and praying for future hope. And he's creating space to come before the Lord and bear his heart before him. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of being dishonest before you, God. I'm sick of being distracted away from this. I want to take this head on, maybe for the first time ever. And I want you to deliver me from this pit that I'm in. And perhaps the problem, as we, again, enter into a new Advent season, perhaps your problem with patience is not 
that um, you're not doing enough, but rather that you're trying to do too much in your own strength. Uh, John Anwuchekwa, he's a pastor down in Atlanta. I heard a talk or I read a transcript of a talk he gave at a pastor's conference talking about praying in desperation. And he talked about the importance of slowing down to consider God. And what a reminder for us in Advent when everything's about to speed up like 100 miles an hour for the next four weeks to slow down. And rather than paraphrase him, I want to... um, Quote him directly, it'll be up on the screen of what he said in this talk. He says, that's what gives us the ability to be patient. We have to consider our God. And the way we have to do that is to slow down. Because we're so busy with working and trying to produce change in the interim. We're so busy with trying to make sure our situations, our circumstances reflect our calling right now. And we don't embrace the fact that God's people have often been a waiting people. And we're so quick to move so we don't pray. Look at this. But when we pray, do you know what we do? We consider. We slow down. And we get into this exchange of words with God. And we are reminded about the nature of reality. That when we slow down, we make time to sing. And we don't just rehearse these truths in a cold way. When we slow down, we gather with the people of God. And as we gather with that group, we don't just commiserate over the sorrow of the world, although that's good and it has its place. But the people of God remind us of the things that we forget. I love that, that when we slow down, we make time to sing. We take time to consider our God. We we get a snapshot and we get to zoom out of, of, of reality, the nature of reality. And we're reminded when we gather with other people, which is why we so emphasize that on Sundays we gather because we need the gathering. And we want to live lives that are being poured out for God to a point where you need to be here on Sunday. You can't picture your life being able to go on in a healthy way without it because in this place, in embodied presence, we worship God together and we're reminded of that which we so often forget. And we pray for future hope, which empowers us to wait well. Well, A couple minutes left here. Psalm 40, it's a fascinating psalm just in and of itself. But you know that Psalm 40 is directly quoted in the New Testament. It's in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews quotes verses 6 through 8, which is what I was talking about earlier. The principle that obedience is better than sacrifice. But here's the fascinating part about the quote. He doesn't attribute it to David. He's at this point in his letter to the church talking about how sacrifices were never meant to take away sins. God never intended them to take away sins in the Old Testament, the blood sacrifices of bloods and rams. But rather they were always to point to something, that God's forgiveness does require the shedding of blood. And he writes this, it'll be on the screen. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, do you catch it? When Christ came to the world, he said, and now he gives his paraphrased quote of Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings that you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When the author of Hebrews did this, it just shed a whole new light on Psalm 40. 
as you look back on it, that Psalm 40 is actually a messianic psalm. Psalm 40 are actually the words of Christ who, say, who came and said, I delight to do your will, Father. And in Christ, listen to this, his obedience was the sacrifice. His obedience to the gourd was the sacrifice of himself, and he's the only one who could do that in such a way where he would take away the sins of the world. Which is why the angel came to Joseph in a dream in Matthew chapter 1 after Joseph found out Mary was pregnant and he resolved to divorce her because he assumed that he had cheated, she had cheated on him. And the angel says to him, Matthew, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I said at the top, I struggle to wait. I often think waiting time is wasted time. But in God's purposes, he never wastes your waiting. He's got a purpose for your waiting. He strengthens you in the waiting. And we can wait well, and we can wait patiently when we reflect in gratitude for past deliverance, when we resolve to choose obedience, and when we pray for future hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the confidence it rises in us, Lord, especially for those who are in a painful time of waiting this morning. And knowing, Lord, even if we are not in that season, that in due time, we will be. And I pray that we would hide your word in our hearts and that this confidence would be spurred in us because not only because of um, who you are, but what you have done to sustain us in sending your one and only son to be born of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit to save us from our sins. And so I pray, Lord, that you who did not spare your only son will be trusted by us to not fail us in our waiting. And that now at the beginning of this Advent, we can join with the global chorus of believers who together sing and pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? as we now join and respond in singing that together.